בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, כתבי מיאמי, ברוך השם, we have מוסר פרקי אבות סיריז, בעזרת השם, we'll continue this series that's helping me to תשובה, I don't know about you guys, but for me, ברוך השם, it's been a real A real big uh, big improvement so each shiul, each time we learn these things even if you know all of it to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it that's the ingredients for success um, so also the shiul will go to refuash the mouth of Michel Koto Yeshua Michael Ben Hadassa Daniel Yeshua Ben Avram Ampar Balufe Herschel Ben Meir שיבא בת שרה, מגדה, ניקול ולמנה, מישל ולמנה, אמילי ולמנה, פטרישה, מונטרו, ידריאן, גרסיה, עדה וסקווז, רוברה גוררו, מליסה נורטו, שרה לאה בת שרה, רובן בן רבקה, דליה רומרו, לינזי מיסטרס, ג'רגנה, בת ולדמיר, דוד בן נסריה, דורית בת ג'ורה, שרה בת לבנה, לבנה בת שרה, דבורה בת נסדס, יהודה בן דבורה, מרדכי, אפרים ושרן. בעזרת השם, they all have רפואה שלמה, רפואת הנפש ורפואת הגוף. אמן. ברוך השם, having a merit to be involved in it, is that you get to be involved in many people's lives. And Ramaj uh, helped them, helped them in many ways that are uh, very personal, very intimate. You know, you get someone that uh, has marriage problems, kids problems, money problems, religious problems, community problems, rabbinical problems, all types of problems that we know of, problems we don't know of, problems we don't have that sometimes we don't even know is a problem. So, Baruch Hashem, you help navigate people to the right page in the Torah. You know, oh, you have this problem. Okay, it says it in Parashat Shavua, Parashat Lech Lecha, Parashat Kitavo, Parashat Tesh, Parashat... It says it in the Torah. All these problems you have, someone in history has had this problem and Hashem has provided a solution, Baruch Hashem. And just like the Torah says, Limud Torah Keneget Kulam, that learning Torah is as if you fulfilled all of the mitzvot, It's also the Chidush we talked about last night. It's also giving us an incentive to learn Torah because Limud Torah, learning Torah, also fixes all your bayot, fixes all of your problems. You just need to, know, just need to get to the right page. It doesn't mean that every time you open a page, it's the right page. You have to get there. So one of the big benefits, Baruch Hashem, is the, uh, and I'm talking about you know, regular benefits. I'm not talking about Olam Abba and all of those other things that are extraordinary, of course. But the benefits that you see with your own eyes, you get to see sometimes, Baruch Hashem, sometimes people listen, 
and they make serious changes in their life. They used to be Mechalel Shabbat, now they keep Shabbat. Before they started keeping Shabbat, you told them you have to keep Shabbat. I said, oh, is it so difficult? I can't believe it. Do I really have to? They try to find a way out of it. But you tell them you have to keep it. You show them in the Torah, it says you have to keep Shabbat. You have to avoid intermarriage. You have to make sure you follow the Torah in every single way, shape, or form. And so on and so forth. And Baruch Hashem, sometimes you get to see, get the pleasure of seeing people take Hashem seriously and do it. And then... They get surprised. I'm never surprised because, Baruch Hashem, I've seen it. And for myself, not only from other people. But they're surprised that actually listening to Hashem gives you an endless amount of reward in this world. Not just the next world, but in this world. You enjoy Shabbat. All of a sudden, you look forward for Shabbat the whole week. You used to think that you don't want to keep it. You used to think that it's going to be torture. You used to think that you don't really want to do it. Now you start keeping Shabbat, after a few months you get the hang of it, you start doing it the right way, you look forward for Shabbat for six days a week. As soon as Shabbat ends, you actually start getting upset. Which, by the way, actually happens because the Neshama Yetera, the second Neshama that you get specifically on Shabbat, leaves. So the Neshama that's left is upset. Now they're half left. So... People get to see this. You, people get to do these tshuva and mamash. They actually see that following Hashem is mamash a guarantee for success. The one of the negative parts of this, not to complain chas v'shalom, but really it has to do with the lecture today. One of the negative parts of doing this is you get to see also the opposite. You get to see Hashem and Achem, what happens when people don't listen to Hashem. And for me personally, I don't know, maybe other rabbis have their own way of expressing themselves. I'm not really sure. But for me personally, when I see a sinner, I don't get upset at them. I don't get like, oh, this guy is a rasha, he's evil. No, I get scared. When I see somebody driving on Shabbat, I get scared. When I see somebody that's about to get married to a non-Jew, whether it's a man about to marry a woman that's not Jewish or vice versa, I get terrified. Terrified. For them. Because I know what's coming. I see somebody that's sinning or is about to make a bigger sin, I get very scared for them because I know what the train looks like when it hits you. And they don't know it's even coming. It's very scary because I also was in their position. And I didn't know that the train was about to hit me. On November 18th of 2006, at 7 a.m., 7 a.m. of November 18th of 2006, I was perfectly healthy with an annoying problem that annoyed me twice a year. Annoying. It wasn't like a I wasn't sick. It's annoying me. It's like someone gets an itch twice a year and they want to eliminate the itch for twice a year. Something like that. At 7 a.m. I was perfectly healthy. November 2006. May of 2006, just a few months before that, six months before, I made $1.6 million for the month 
So, and I continued making a lot of money after it. So money wasn't the problem. Even though some of the deals that I had at the time didn't go as good as I wanted them to, we still had plenty of money to burn. So on November 18, 2006, at 7 a.m., everything was fine. Now little did I know that as of 8 a.m., just one hour, 60 minutes later, 60 minutes later, 60 minutes later, 60 minutes later, I didn't know that everything would change. Everything would change in such a drastic way, you would think it's a made-up story. Like if I heard the story, I wouldn't believe it. If I didn't live the story, I wouldn't believe it. If you actually break the whole thing down, you see, in a matter of 60 minutes, everything changed. Fortune changed. From that moment on, everything changed. Every single thing we touched turned to garbage. The gold turned to powder. Used to be sand turned to gold. The gold started turning to powder. The friends became enemies. Healthy 26-year-old all of a sudden became the sickest person you've ever met in your life. The AIDS victims were looking at me and like, oh, this guy's really sick. Sixty minutes difference. But I didn't know. I didn't know. That's why I get scared. Because many people don't realize that in a matter of just like that, in sixty minutes, in sixty seconds, you could destroy your ulamaba, but already start suffering for it here in this world. People always think all oh, the suffering is in Genom. In the first chamber, in the second chamber, in the sixth, in the seventh. Da, 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 da. No, 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 no. There's a chamber, chamber called earth. And for the most part, most people spend their lives suffering here. But they don't know why they're suffering here. When you get there, when you get to Allah Abba, you know for sure why you're suffering. They tell you. They tell you. One of the very scary things you read in Rashid Chokhmah, so people that steal, they feed them sand and yell at them. Say, why don't you eat? Eat. And it breaks their teeth. It's like, why? Why? Uh, why? You know, what's, what's the punishment for? When you, you were eating what was not yours, when you were eating what was not yours, you didn't uh, cry about it. Now we're giving you something. Here, eat the sand. Why are you crying? The punishment is awful, awful. This is for stealing, uh, meaning you made a, you ate, you ate a piece of bread, you didn't do a blessing. That's stealing. We're not talking about robbing a store. Shem Echem for that. Talk about you just ate, you just drank a little iced tea, you got Baruch Hashem, Olga made us nice iced tea, you forgot to do a blessing. First blessing, second blessing. Shemaim, you have to pay for that. You have to pay the bill. It's very scary. So imagine somebody's about to intermarry. Imagine. So sometimes I see this. And sometimes, by sometimes I mean every day. That's what I mean by sometimes. Every day. Every day I see these bad news. And it makes me very sad. Because I try to help. I really, Mamash, try to help these people day and night to go in the right direction, to help them. 
But for whatever reason or another, when it comes to the rega emet, the moment of truth, they break. They break. The question is, what will we do? When the moment of truth comes and Hashem tests us, will we fail, will we break, or will we make it? In this week's parasha, Parashat Chayesara, we see that Avraham Avinu is t- continuously tested. We thought that last week was the last test. You were just about to slaughter your son. We figured this is the end of it. And some of the Chachamim say that Akedat Yitzchak was such a monumental test, nothing was compared to it. Until we find out that as soon as he gets back home, he finds out that the love of his life, the other half of his soul just died. And he has to go bury her. This is a moment of truth, to say the least, where at this point, any person in the world, in any generation, other than Avraham Avinu, would have broken down. Would have just said, you know what, Hashem, no, chalas, enough. Enough. Okay. I jumped into the fire. I slowed my... Whatever. I did. Now, what are you killing my wife for? Moment of truth. What does what is, what is Avraham Avinu do? Avraham Avinu makes sure that the crying, the suffering that he's going to... that he does, he does it privately. He does it privately. So no one sees him crying and asks the question, why does Hashem punish such a righteous person? Because chas v'shalom, they question Hashem. So we see in the moment of truth, Avraham Avinu passes the test with flying colors, gets perfect score. Wasn't she hundred and twenty-seven years old. He died at one hundred and seventy-five. She still had a, uh, some time left according to the way he lived. But Chazal say that she died at the perfect time. It's just the way she died was a surprise. In essence, the equivalent of a heart attack. Because what happened is that when uh, she woke up in the morning and she saw that, you know, the son is missing, but she didn't think much of it. It's not like today where... You just call your son every five seconds to see where he's at. Sometimes the children would go away for uh, days. But Yitzchak wasn't exactly a child. He was 37 years old. But the Satan has a job. His job is to test us. Not to destroy us. First is to test us. If we pass the test, he comes back with another test. If we fail the test, he goes to Hashem and he tells on us. Now look, he failed the test. Can I punish him? Can I go punish him now? He failed the test. Can I punish him for it? So first he's a Yetzara, then he's Satan, then he's Malachamavit. That's Gemara Masechet Brachot. So, 
the Satan came to Sarai Menu as a uh, homeless guy, beggar, you know, poor person on a camel. And he says, uh, Oh, aren't you uh, Itzchak's uh, mother? And aren't you married to this Avraham, this crazy guy Avraham? He says, What's it to you? He goes, Oh, I just want to let you know, I just saw that crazy husband of yours. Uh, he's, uh, he, he was tying up your son. He was about to kill him. He was about to slaughter him as a sacrifice. He always told everybody not to sacrifice kids, but he went to sacrifice your son. So I don't know why you're so uh, happy because your husband is sacrificing your son as we speak. Now, Sarai Menu didn't just love her son. Every mother loves her son. Sarai Menu knew that the entire fate of Am Israel depends on Yitzchak Avinu. Without Yitzchak Avinu, there's no Yaakov Avinu. Without Yaakov Avinu, there's no 12 tribes. Without the 12 tribes, there's no Am Yisrael. So it's not that just loving the sun. And, no. Sarai Menu was a prophet bigger than Avraham Avinu. She had better prophecy than Avraham Avinu. She knew the future. She says the whole thing depends on Yitzchak. You tell me he's going to kill him? That means he's destroying the world, as of right now. He's not destroying my son. Anybody can have one kid, so somebody else can have a son. No, he's destroying the world. Right now, Akedah, if he kills him, he, the moment, five seconds later, Hashem destroys the world. Why? There's no Am Yisrael. Without Am Yisrael, there's no world. So, my husband, you're telling me, is about to destroy the world. Would you get worried? And that's just this world. Imagine it's eternity too. So Sarai Menu is hysterical. She goes to the giants, to the nef- to the what was remaining of the Nephilim. And she asks him, did you see my husband? And there was three big Nephilim that were related to Og, but not Og himself. Og was involved in the story of Lot. I think one of them was called Timan or Taman. And the other two, I forget their name. But anyway, she goes to these three giants. She says, you see my husband? She says, oh yeah, yeah, we see. There's actually an old man, I guess that's your husband. And he's on a mountain. And uh, yeah, he tied up a younger guy, it's about half his age or a third of his age, with the uh, hands behind the back and the legs behind the back and they're tied to each other. The Gemara Masechet Shabbat, page 54, asks, how do we know what's the Akedah? says, we learn from Avraham Avinu. What's the Akedah? It's when the hands and the legs are tied to each other. Meaning, you're leaving no room whatsoever for whatever is being tied to move. And you're not allowed to do that. The Gemara talks about it. You're not allowed to do it to an animal. For example, on Shabbat, you don't want your animals to run away. You have a camel, you have a horse, you have a donkey, whatever. You want to tie them to something. But you're not allowed to tie them in any way you want. Meaning, they're not allowed, you're not allowed to make them suffer. Because that's called Tzar Baal Chaim. So you can't just tie them like Avraham Avinu tied his son. Where they can't move the whole Shabbat. You have to tie them in a way that's kosher. So for example, a camel... You're allowed to tie one of his legs. So he could still walk and manage, but it's on three legs, which means he's not going to run away. And so on and so forth. But you're not allowed to tie any animal like Avraham Avinu tied his son.
That's Gemara Shabbat 56, I believe. 65. Maybe in 55. So, they're telling her what they see, these giants. They have good vision. They're giants. Tell her, I see, yeah, he's, he's tying them. And he has a knife in his hand. And then Hashem makes the clouds come and block the vision. That's the, that's the moment of truth for Sarai Menu. That's the moment of truth for Sarai Menu. The giants now can't see. They can't see what's happening. So they can't tell, hey, by the way, oh, he did it, he didn't do it. They don't know what happened. That's the moment of truth where Sarai Menu is now crying her eyes out, not knowing what's happening. Is, is the world going to be destroyed in a moment or not? This is like one of those uh, action movies I remember I saw as a kid where there was always, the world was always about to explode or get destroyed by some bomb or some meteor or something, but something would always happen in the last minute to save the world. So in essence, this is happening, but it actually happened in real life. But now she doesn't know what's happening. There's no news. Then suddenly, another guy comes in which is also the Satan, but now he's dressed up as something else. And he says to her, Hey, don't worry, uh, just so you know, I just saw your uh, son, Yitzchak, and Avram, they, uh, they were just walking, they walked down the mountain. Everything was good. From happiness, from happiness, she died. From happiness, she died. Equivalent of a heart attack. This is why Chazal teaches that when you're about to give someone good news or bad news, but even good news, specifically good news, you have to give it to them in pieces. Like if it's a big thing, like for example, there's a story, it's a funny story, but it's very, very real. Two guys are friends, one of them is very, very poor. And the guy that's not, you know, he's also poor, but not as poor as the other guy. He says, why don't you buy a lotto ticket? Why don't you buy a lotto ticket? He says, ah, me, my luck. I can't even win a bubble gum. I can't win. You want me to buy a lotto ticket? He goes, what do you get? It's one dollar. Ask somebody to give you a dollar. Buy a lotto ticket. He's bothering him the whole day. Buy a lotto ticket. Buy a lotto ticket. Buy a lotto ticket. Eventually, the guy says, okay, you know what? I'll buy a lotto ticket. What is it? One dollar. I'll buy a lotto ticket. So he buys a lot of tickets, but if he has such bad luck his whole life, he forgets about the ticket. A couple of days pass, his friend sees the numbers on the, uh, you know, on one of these billboards, remembers that his friend has these numbers. He looks at the, his friend's t- numbers, he sees his friend won. Now if he knows, this guy, for him, 50 bucks is a lot of money. If he tells him, listen, you just won $10 million, $100 million, a billion dollars, whatever they people win in lotto these days. The guy's going to have a heart attack and die. She doesn't know what to do. She says, you know what? I have an idea. He goes to a doctor. He says, listen, you have to tell my friend something. What do you have to tell your friend? You have to tell my friend he won the lotto. Did he? Yes, he won the lotto. Okay, bring him here. So he tells him, listen, you don't look so good. Why don't we go to the doctor? No, no, I don't have any money for a doctor. Because no, no, don't worry about it. It's a friend of mine. I know this doctor. Come with me to the doctor. He'll take care of you for free. He says, oh, okay, I'll go to the doctor. You say I don't look so good. You're my buddy. Why not? He goes to the doctor. 
So the doctor is checking him, faking it like something is really wrong. And yes, the doctor starts talking to him because the doctor knows if I tell him right now you want $100 million, he's going to die. He's going to get a heart attack, this guy. So the doctor says to him, listen, your friend told me that you had a lotto ticket. He goes, yeah, yeah, I forgot about this lotto ticket. Wait, he told you about my lotto ticket? He goes, yeah, the lotto ticket. What if you won? What do you mean if I won? He goes, what if you won, I don't know, $500? The guy's like, wow, $500? You know what I can do with $500? $500, I can live a whole month. $500. $500? $500, $500 I can eat. I can go to get a motel and, uh, and shower for the first time in a few months. You know what I can do with 500 guys so happy just talking about some fake $500 that he doesn't have. So the doctor's like, okay, okay, I got to take it easy on this guy. He goes, what if you won $5,000? $5,000. dollars doc. Are you serious? What do you want? Like, that's a dream come true. Five, you know what I can do with $5,000? $5,000, I'm already rich. What else do I need to ask out of $5,000? $5,000? $5,000 changed my whole life. So the doctor says... What if you won $50,000? The guy starts looking at the doctor. He goes, what do you have all these questions? What do you give me this $50,000? $50,000? All I can do is $50,000? $50,000? I'm taking everybody I know will be to lunch. So the doctor sees this guy is, you know, okay, maybe by now it's okay. Maybe by now I can tell him. I already tested him a few times. What if you won the jackpot? You won $100 million. The homeless guy, poor guy, this is not even a part of his imagination. So he says to the doc, he goes, Doc, if I want $100 million, I'm giving you 50 The doctor drops dead. <laughs> so Chazal teaches us, when you give somebody good news, you have to be careful. This is what we're going to learn in a couple of weeks after they find out that Yosef is still alive. Before they tell Yaakov that Yosef is still alive after 22 years of not seeing his son, they send Serach Bat Asher, Serach, the daughter of Asher, to go sing, to go sing to her grandfather Yaakov and put him in a good mood. What's he singing? Yosef is still alive and he's the king of Egypt, like in the background, like elevator music. And that got him into a good mood, so by the time they actually told him, he was ready for it. Because they knew that if they tell him right away, he could kill him. Where did they learn it from? Sarai Menu. When the Satan told her, hey, your son is alive and well, it was too much for her. She died. Now, of course, Chazal says that she lived exactly 127 years like she was supposed to, this was just, the way she died was surprising and it was actually a midah kineged midah, punishment, for laughing when the angels told her that she's going to have a son. So first, the first punishment was telling her, no, you don't have a son, which is what she believed, she's not going to have a son. And then telling her, no, you do have a son, he's alive. When she laughed about it. So it's midah kineged midah, measure for measure. So the way she died... But nonetheless, for people like us, what she did was all mitzvot. How could someone die from happiness? Like, I don't believe that could ever happen to me. Like... Heart attack. Heart attack. So I won a lottery. No, it's not a matter of the lotto itself. It's, not, it's, it's just a matter of a physical reaction to a, an emotional event. 
And usually, in many cases, you see people that have heart attacks or brain aneurysms or any type of major issue like that, usually it's a result of some type of emotional response. Usually it's either the cause of anger, they got so angry, their body reacted, not just their emotions. Or they got so stressed, their body reacted. If you go to any doctor, any psychiatrist, any psychologist, and you ask them, what is the number one killer in the world? Number one killer, stress. Being stressed out. In the Jewish world, we call it lack of emunah. Lack of faith in Hashem. That's why you get stressed out, because you have no emunah. So now, back to Avram Avinu. He gets tested. Now he has to bury his wife. He has to hide his sorrows. So chas v'shalom, there's no chilul Hashem. No person out there that has lack of emunah, that doesn't understand the way Hashem runs the world questions it, and he moves on. So from this, we see that Avraham Avinu understood a concept. A concept that if we ourselves understand, it'll change our life. But if we don't understand it, we're doomed. It's a very simple concept that if you understand it, follow it, you're in good shape. You could be your own version of Avraham Avinu, your own version of Sarai Menu. If you don't understand it, nothing in the world will help you. And that's the Mishnah. The Mishnah this week says, Rabbi Yaakov Omer, Aulam azeh dome leprozdor, bepnei haolam haba, עדכן עצמך בפרוזדור כדי שתיכנס לטרקלין. רבי יעקב, which we also met in the uh, Mishnah in Avot 3.9, maybe about a month and a half ago, two months ago. רבי יעקב says, this world is like the lobby before the world to come. Prepare yourself in the lobby so that, you may, so that you may enter the hall, the banquet hall. So first and foremost, we have to remind ourselves of who is this Rabbi Yaakov. Rabbi Yaakov was one of the Tanaim, one of the holy people that's in the Gemara, in the Mishnayot. Has several famous uh, sayings that we've learned in the past that we'll continue learning. One of them is that the reward for all of your mitzvot is an olam haba. Anything you get in this world is just in essence to help you make more mitzvot. Which the Rambam elaborates on, on Shmona Prakim, his book Shmona Prakim. But the point is that he's famous for saying, listen, this, all the reward that you have is an olam haba. But the other thing that's very interesting is that Rabbi Yaakov is also the grandson of Elisha Achel, Elisha ben Avuya. Who's Elisha ben Avuya? In the time of the Tanaim, each one of them was extraordinarily holy. But unfortunately, once in a while, you'd have a bad story. And Elisha ben Avuya tops them all. 
Elisha ben Avuya was a Tana at the time of Rabbi Akiva, and he's one of the four people that the Gemara Masechet Chagigah says he went to the Pardes. He went to see what happens in Shemaim. Four Tanaim went to see what happens in Shemaim. Things that we pre- we can't even comprehend. Forget about tell you the story. Understanding what Pardes even means, we can't understand. They went to see what happens in Shemaim, whatever that means. One saw it, couldn't take it, went crazy. Another saw it, fell in love with it, didn't want to leave, was willing to die, died. Didn't didn't come back, didn't come back, his Neshama didn't come back. Let me finish the point. Came back, stayed there, saw it, I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave. I told somebody something that most people don't know is that if you get to a point of studying Torah deep, deeply enough, I'm not talking about studying a lot of books. I'm not talking about being a bookworm. Of course, that's necessary. But I'm talking about gluing yourself to Hashem. Every moment that you're awake, you're glued to Hashem. You're reading His Torah, and you're doing what it says. Not just reading it because it's entertaining or it's mentally stimulating. You're much gluing yourself to Hashem. The Torah can get to a point where unlike secular knowledge, the Torah can actually give you a physical reaction. But the physical reaction is it's like nothing else. It's like nothing else. Now, Baruch Hashem, I've never done drugs in my life, so I don't know what it feels like to be high. But the description of this feeling is something that is not from this world. It's not. It's not. It's it's, it's a physical reaction, but it's not of this world. It's a pleasure that you can't get from the material world. It's impossible. So, to imagine one of the tzaddikim, one of the tanaim, go to Shemaim. Shemaim. It's not learning over here. It's going to Shemaim, sees what's happening over there, and not wanting to leave. It's not such a big uh, difficulty to understand it. I wouldn't want to leave either. Okay. Third one. So what happens in Shemaim? His neshama was able to handle it. He was actually boosted from it. Became even a bigger tzaddik. That's Rabbi Akiva. But the fourth one saw what was happening over there. Didn't really understand. Didn't understand one of the things that he saw. And made him question things. Made him question things. And little by little, it became a kofil. Why? He says, how could it be that... All of the reward is in the next world. Why can we have here? How could it be that it says in the Torah that the Malachim are standing, but I saw with my own eyes there's actually a Malach that's sitting down. I saw a Malach that's sitting down. Does that change the rules of Shabbat? Does that change the rules of kosher? Does that change the rules of Tarat Mishpacha? No. But for him, this question put everything into doubt. You ever meet those people? They ask you a few questions. 
And sometimes you know the answer. Sometimes you don't know the answer. You're not Moshe Rabbeinu. Sometimes you don't know the answer. But you answer them already 50 questions. 50 questions in a row. Do, 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 do. You're like a Torah encyclopedia. Question number 51. Like, you know what? I'm not really sure. Ah, see? You don't know. Ah, forget it. I'm not going to keep Shabbat. What do you mean? But you're asking about Adam Rishon. You're asking about, you're asking about if the fruits came before the trees. And the, you know, it has nothing to do with Shabbat. It has nothing to do with one question. That's it. That's not a person that's looking for answers. It's a person that's looking for excuses. He was just waiting to ask you enough questions. Eventually, you're not going to know something, and then he can justify his sinful behavior. So Elisha ben Avuya saw something he didn't understand in his level, and he lost it. He lost it and became a big kofil. Started becoming a murderer. He went to yeshivot, he would ask kids, little tiny, little kids studying Torah, what are you studying? Oh, I'm studying Mishnayot. Okay, give me a Mishnah. What Mishnah are you studying? He gives them a Mishnah. Okay, give me a pirush on the Mishnah. Give me a commentary. What, what's, what's the Mishnah mean? And the kid will give him what, it, what he thought it means. He goes, oh, you're wrong. Took the kid, killed him. And then he cut him into pieces and he sent him to all the yeshivot. Mamash, Crazy. But this Elisha, who's this Elisha ben Avuya? Just some some crazy guy? Who's this Elisha ben Avuya? Do you know that on Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, every one of you mentions the name of a student when you're crying to Hashem for mercy. You're crying to Hashem for mercy on Yom Kippur. What do you say? And during the uh, Yom Kippur, Elah de Rabbi Meir Aneni, the God of Rabbi Meir, answer me. Answer me, who's Rabbi Meir? Rabbi Meir Baranes is the student of Elisha Avuya. Achel. So if the student is someone we depend on for, for some mercy, pretty much we're, we're saying he has so many merits. This Rabbi Meir Baranes has so many merits. Hook me up. Help me out in Shemaim. No, because of, not because of me. I don't have any merits. Go to, you know, but... Uh, but Rabbi Meir has extra merits, enough for the whole nation he has. So Hashem, you're his God, no? I'm mentioning him. Help me out. It's like, oh, what? You don't know I know uh, so-and-so? you drop dropping names. You ever meet those people? They drop names? Yeah, what? You don't know Eddie? Yeah, 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 Eddie, Eddie. We went to school together. Eddie hasn't seen you in 30 years. But the fact that you went to school with him, you're mentioning his name like he's your boy. Name dropping. We read a little Mishnah. It says Rabbi Meir, we're dropping names to Hashem. Hashem, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Meir, Aneni. But it works. Now you have a problem though. His rabbi went off the derech. Went off the derech. But he was Kodesh Kodeshim, his rabbi. It wasn't just some rabbi that's... Uh... To be the rabbi of Rabbi Meir, that means he was bigger than Rabbi Meir. The students are not bigger than the, than the rabbis. But he saw something that he didn't have an answer for he didn't like it. Started making sins. Little by little, the sins fed themselves with more excuses. And even when he wanted to do tshuva, he made enough sins that Hashem made it difficult for him. He became machtia rabim. Made other people sin. So, not to the same level, but yes. Not to the same level. Anyway, when he wanted to do tshuva, 
he heard a bat call, he heard some type of a voice, an echo of a voice, a heavenly voice saying, everyone can do tshuva except Achel, except the other, meaning him. Elisha Avuya. Elisha ben Avuya. So now, Rabbi Meir, this is his rabbi. Rabbi Meir has a lot of schuyot. And he said, when I die, I'm going to go to Shemaim. I'm going to beg Hashem with all of my schuyot. I'm going to put all my schuyot on the line to allow me to put my rabbi, Elisha ben Avuya, in Genom. To put him in Genom. Why? Because right now he's in Kafakela. Right now he's in nowhere. They didn't know what to do with him. He went to Shemaim. On one hand, he's a sinner. He's a murderer. He violated Shabbat. He did a bunch of really, really bad things. Sex crimes, all types of tar- terrible things. But on another hand, the amount of Torah that was inside him, the amount of Torah that he learned, was unprecedented to such an extent that one time Rebbe Akadosh, Rebbe, Rabbi Yudana that wrote the Mishnah, saw his daughter. After he died, he says, whose daughter are you? He goes, Elisha ben Avuya. He goes, Achel, his seed is still alive? Immediately a fire from Shemaim nearly burned Rebbe. Rebbe was holy. But a fire from Shemaim was defending Achel, was defending Elisha ben Avuya because of the Torah that he had. So, Rabbi Meir goes to Shemaim, and all of a sudden, they saw, the Gemara says, they saw that smoke started coming out of the ground, of where Elisha Acher was actually buried. Meaning that Rabbi Meir put him in Gehenom. 150 years passed. There's Rabbi Yochanan one day, sees the smoke, and he asks, what's the smoke? And the people that were old enough and knew the story, says, oh, you know, there used to be, Elisha Acher, everything I just told you. Elisha Acher is still in Gehenom. I put my word down now, all the Torah that he learned, I'm vowing now that when I die, I'm going to go to Shemaim, and I'm going to take him out of Gehenom myself. Me, ten, who's going to get in my way? Rabbi Yochanan. Who's going to get in my way? When Rabbi Yochanan died, they saw that the smoke from Elisha Acher ended. Meaning he took him out of Gehenom, put him in Gan Eden. The question is, Me, ten, lanu, who's going to help us? And take us out. There's no Rabbi Yochanan anymore. Who's going to take us out? Where? We don't have the Vida Melech. He's not. It's his son. We're not his son. We're not his children. It's a different story. And it wasn't his fault that Bishar happened because he saw something that he would have seen. He would also. Kvodobim Komo. Point is, he's in Ganeden. We're still here. Now, a lot of people depend on this Chazal that says that a Jew that sins and goes to Gehenom can be saved. By who? By Avraham Avinu. 
Avraham Avinu goes into Genom and takes out different Jews that deserve to be taken out. What is not being taught is that there are certain people he does not take out. In the parasha, it says in chapter 23, chapter 24, I'm sorry, chapter 24, verse 1, Avraham zaken ba bayamim vadonai berach et Avraham bakol. It says now Avraham was old, well in, on in years, and Hashem has blessed Avraham with everything. What does it mean? Hashem berach et Avraham bakol. He blessed him with everything. It means Avraham became a billionaire. Avraham became so rich, he's printing money. Avram had anything and everything you can possibly imagine, materially, spiritually, he was a complete human being. But now he has one thing that he's missing. His wife has died, he's remarried, but his one son, his one main son, Yitzchak, still hasn't married. Still hasn't married, and it's hurting him. So he says, uh, Avram got remarried, yes. Many kids says in the parasha. It's in the parasha. Shtaim kra chatargu. So he's upset that his son has not gotten married, and he tells his number one servant Eliezer. Eliezer would take over any time Avraham was not able to give a shiur Torah. Eliezer became Tamit Chacham, gave shiur Torah. He says, Eliezer, I need you to go find my son a wife. But not just anyone. You have to go to a different place to find a son that has to be specifically from a specific family. It cannot be Mibnote Knani. It cannot be from the daughters of Knan. Simna yadecha tachat yerechi v'ashbiecha ba'adonai. Says, put your hand under my thigh, and and I will have you swear by Hashem. So this is what you're gonna do. So Rashi says, what do you? What, what does it mean? Put your hand under my thigh. Avraham Avinu, like I just said was blessed with everything, was blessed with material wealth that only in your dreams maybe you can get to. Only in your dreams, maybe. He had everything you could possibly imagine. But the most valuable possession that he had was his Brit Milah. Now, unlike our tainted heads, that as soon as we think of such a thing, immediately we think of dirty, disgusting things, for Avraham Avinu, just like he viewed his finger that's able to changed the pages in the Chumash as Kodesh Kodeshim, he viewed his Brit Milah as Kodesh Kodeshim. A holy person views his Brit as Kodesh, as something holy. Only a tainted mind like we have in the generation we live in today thinks of it as something that's provocative and dirty and, and so on and so forth. For Avraham Avinu, 
It was the most valuable thing he had. Because why? It was an agreement. It was an actual sign of an agreement between him and Ribbono Shorolam. Money, you have a contract, you buy a, a land. When he bought the Ma'arat HaMachpelah, he signed a deal, he gave some money, that was the sign. It was money. Money exchange hands. You buy a piece of real estate, you give the guy some money, maybe you sign a contract, the end. You have any proofs you have a deal with Hashem? Who here has any proofs that Hashem even knows he's is alive? Hashem signed any books for you? No. Avram Avinu did. Avram Avinu had a signature from Hashem. He had a brief milah. So for him, that was the most valuable thing that he has. And he tells Eliezer, put your hand under my brit. Because this is the most valuable thing that I have. And swear to Hashem. Swear in Hashem's name that you're going to go find my son, a wife, that followed, that meets these requirements. Now why did Avram emphasize several times that it cannot be Nibnot Knan, that it cannot be from the daughters of Knan. Why? Because Eliezer himself was from Knan. Eliezer became Talmit Chacham. Eliezer became Gdolador after Avram Avinu. Chazal says Eliezer became so holy, Hashem changed his face to look exactly like a replica like Avram Avinu. You see both of them walking, they look the same. Became monotheistic, obviously. There was no Judaism at the time. But the point is that Eliezer became holy. But when did Eliezer become Eliezer? When did Eliezer become somewhat at a level that in Shemaim they decided, him, he's never going to die. He's going to go to Gan Eden alive. When? Right here in this parasha. Because right now Eliezer says, I have a daughter. I have a daughter, same you know, age as your son, she's perfectly fine, I'm her father, you're her rabbi, she has a good rabbi, it's you, I'm her father, I'm a decent father, I follow, I'm your student, good family, who raised her? Your, your wife, she has a good rabbinit, I have a daughter, who can be a better match? They grew up together, they know each other, good shiduch, no? How nice is it when one gdolador his kids married the other Gdolador's kids. You know what kind of celebrations they have? That's always tried. Rabbis always try to marry their kids together. You know, it's good families. Especially the big giants. So here you have Eliezer. Have a perfect daughter. Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu says to Eliezer is Talmid. Lo tikach isha don't bring a woman from the Bnei Knan, from Knan to my wife. Why? Because Knan is cursed. I am blessed. Knan is cursed. I am blessed. Now, if I was a student, and he just told me, listen, you just came to my yeshiva, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, I'm in your yeshiva, I'm your Talmud, I'm giving lectures for free, I'm this, I'm this, and now you're telling me I'm cursed? Okay, I retire. Thank you very much for the teaching. I'm going back to my father Nimrod. What do I need this for? My teachers tell me after 50 years, I'm cursed. You don't want to marry my daughter? That's why I'm not Eliezer. Eliezer, Eliezer, what does he say? He says, you're right, Avraham. You're right. Knan is cursed. 
remember in the Torah we learned Parashat Noach. Parashat Noach says Canaan is cursed. You're right. Hashem says Canaan is cursed. You're right. And Hashem saw in his heart that Eliezer was not offended. He knew it's the truth. He saw the truth. He accepted the truth for what it is. He was not offended for a moment. And he says, him, he doesn't deserve to die. He's going to go to Gan Eden alive. When the rega shel emet, the rega shel emet, the moment of truth, when Eliezer got the test, are you going to follow the Torah because it's true? Or are you going to follow the Torah because it's convenient? Many people follow the Torah because it's convenient. Oh yeah, I like Shabbat. Shabbat's nice. It's a vacation. Oh, so you're not keeping Shabbat because Hashem said so. You're keeping Shabbat because you like to take a rest once a week. Oh, kosher is good. It tastes good. Kosher food is good. Oh, so you're not eating kosher because Hashem said so. You're eating kosher because you have five kosher stores next to your house. It's not really that big of a deal. So a lot of people today... Unfortunately, I see this every day. Many times you see religious people that are religious because it's convenient, not because it's true. And this is why when they're tested, when there's a moment of truth, many break. Because their belief, their Amunai and Hashem didn't have much legs to begin with. In the moment of truth, there was no truth. This whole time they kept it because it was convenient. Abba was a rabbi, Ima was a rabbanit, went to yeshiva my whole life, you know, my friends were all religious, but as soon as he met the non-Jewish girl that was pretty, he left everything. Do you know how many people already right now as we speak, as we speak, I'm dealing with at least a half a dozen religious people, religious Jews, born religious, been religious, the whole religion, we talked about this last night. Religious people that are right now in a situation of intermarriage. Religious. We're not talking about people are secular. Religious people, they call themselves religious. They keep Shabbat, keep kosher, keep everything. But they're intermarried. They have a problem with intermarriage. They're about to get married. They're with somebody, about to be with somebody, and so on and so forth. Why? Because at the moment of truth, they broke. It was convenient religion. For Eliezer, at the moment of truth, he not only withstood the test, but he said, this is Emet, and he wasn't even offended. He wasn't offended. And that's why it says, V'yasem ha'eved, and the servant, meaning Eliezer, placed his hand under the thigh of Avraham, his master, and swore to him regarding this manner. So to us, again, some of us that have twisted mind, unfortunately, we're still thinking about, why do they keep having to touch this brit? Because we're still thinking in our twisted mind that this is something that's not holy. Now let me give you a chidush maybe you don't know. The brit of a Jew is so holy that Avraham Avinu has a contract with Hashem. Every so often he goes to Geinom to see who's there. And he identifies the Jews by their brit. If they protected their brit, meaning they did not violate their brit, they didn't waste seed, 
They didn't go with non-Jews. They didn't go with prostitutes. They weren't overly promiscuous and so on. He takes them out of Gainon. That's your get-out-of-jail-free card. Unfortunately, in today's generation, I don't know if such a person exists. Because there's such little teaching about wasting seed that nearly every single person that I meet either has the problem currently or is like working to get out of it or thinking about it. Some, it's connected to it in some way or another. And I'm not just talking about the young guys that are 15, 16 years old. I'm talking about married men. 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and as long as it works, have this problem. People think, no, no, I'll fix this problem. I'm not going to waste seed once I get married. If you didn't fix it when you were single, it's definitely not going to be fixed when you're married. It'll actually get worse. It'll actually get worse when you get married. So then this covenant doesn't apply to you. Avram can't save you. Me ten, me ten. Who's going to help you? Who's, who's going to give you something? Rabbi Yochanan was able to help Elisha ben Avuya. Rabbi Yochanan was able to go to Shemaim and fight for Elisha ben Avuya. Says who? Who's going to get in my way? With all the Torah I have, all the Torah he has, all the Torah Bimei has, we can help him. Why? He's Tana. Who's going to help us? That's our only hope. That's in essence what I was saying. The point is, is that when somebody doesn't protect their breed, it's not that Avraham Avinu does not want to save him. It's that Avraham Avinu cannot identify him as a Jew. Once somebody has not done has died without doing tshuva, if they wasted seed or they did some type of gamavrit, they hurt their brit, but they did tshuva, and it's fine. We're good. But if they lived their whole life, and they hurt their brit, and they did not do tshuva, when Avraham Avinu goes to save the neshamot from Gehenom, he does not identify them as Jews. Because they don't have the sign that he had. They don't have the brit. So, here we see that the Brit Milah that you have when you get it eight days old or if you're a convert later on sometimes is more than just a Brit Milah. It's more than just a circumcision, more than just cutting some skin off of you that you forget about moments after it actually happens. Here we see Avraham Avinu says it's your most valuable possession. Now parents need to teach this to their kids. So I'll give you some more things, what it says in the Torah about. You know it's true. That's your Shefa. So, in the Gemara Masechet Shabbat, how come we see a lot of righteous, very righteous people who really machmir in this, like that video you sent me once of those pastors in Jerusalem who how they train the whole life and it, it doesn't look like they have Shefa when you... Because you define day. Shefa differently than Shefa really is. You define Shefa as money. Shefa does not mean money, which we'll get to in a moment. So you see, we have a source of where everything comes from. Rav Ava said in the name of Ravuna, which we learned a little bit about yesterday, who said in the name of Rav. 
כל המניח ידיו כנגד פניו של מטה, כאילו כופר בבריתו של אברהם אבינו. says anyone who places his hand over his lower face, meaning on his genital, puts his hand on it. We're not talking about wasting seed even. We're talking about literally just touching it. Has denied the covenant of our father Avraham Avinu. Since it appears that he's ashamed of his circumcision. Meaning sometimes you see people, they go to the mikveh and they're hiding, you know, from... For, for the purpose of tzniut. This is very good. This is appropriate behavior. But some people like to go to these gyms. Or they like to go to these public saunas. And they're hiding their brit. But not because they're hiding it because of modesty. They're hiding it because they don't want people to know that they're different. There were some people that were reshaim to such an extent that they would actually pull their skin to such an extent that it looked like they didn't have a brit. But the significance of what we're saying here is neither this or that. The significance here is that we're seeing that Chazal even looked at touching your Brit as something very dangerous. Something that you could literally risk your entire Olam Abba by simply touching your Brit inappropriately. In the same Gemara it says, Rabbi Eliezer Omer, Kol ha'ochez ba'amah u'mashtin ke'ilu mevim abul la'olam. Whoever holds his male member while urinating is considered as if he's bringing the mabul to the world. He's bringing the flood, Noah's, Noah's flood, to the world. Why? Because the main reason of why Hashem decided to destroy the world was because people were wasting seed. How do people get to such an extent that they're so comfortable to waste seed? They become very comfortable with their bodies, overly comfortable with their bodies, which we talked about recently. A little more further... In the Gemara, in Masechet Abodah Zarah, it says, The Rabbi is told in the Bereta, V'nishmata mikol davara. You shall beware of any evil thing. Shelo ya'ar'er adam bayom, V'yavo lide tum'a balayla. So, the, the Rabbi is teaching here that a person should never put himself in a situation where he sees or is involved in anything evil during the day. Because this will bring Tum'ah to him by night. So the sages explain, what does this mean? Rashi says, what they're referring to is watching your eyes. If you look at every single girl that moves during the day, at night you're going to have dreams that are going to lead you to waste seed. If you're going to look at everything that moves during the day, at night you're not going to be able to control yourself and you're going to waste seed. Either on purpose or not on purpose, but one way or another it's going to happen. Now if you understand the significance of it, you're realizing why it's called Ra. It's called Ra in the eyes of Hashem. Why is it called Ra? Ra is another name for Genom. If you want to be safe from Gainom, protect your breed. Protect your breed. How do you protect your breed? You start with your eyes. Further. The 
מגיד ממזריץ' says that there's a small hole in your body that creates a, a large hole in your soul. A small hole in your body that could create a large hole in your soul. This very small hole can either bring life or destroy it. And there's obviously many, many other things. But there's one particular thing that we're going to go over again. We've talked about it in the past, but this very same Rabbi Yochanan. His students came to him. They asked him, how did you marry to have long life and so on and so forth. But in the same Gemara that we see that story of, uh, of him telling his uh, students how he merited to, to, to have such a uh, such a long life 120 years um, it says also a story about Rabbi Eliezer so Rabbi Eliezer when he got sick his students came to him this is in Gemara Masech Brachot page 28b and they say to him how did you marry to have such a long life? Be mindful of the honor of your colleagues and restrain your children from recitation and place them between the knees of Torah scholars. And when you pray, know before whom you stand. On the account of this, you will merit a life of the world to come. So here... Rabbi Eliezer tells them a few notes that are pretty much common sense. Give people respect. Make sure you take care of your kids to give them Jewish education. Make sure that when you pray, you're paying attention to who you're praying. You're not playing with your phone. I always tell people, sometimes you see them playing with the phone in Beknesset. They go to Beknesset, but in the middle of prayer, instead of praying, they're checking the baseball game. They're checking the basketball game. They're checking uh, the stock market. And I ask myself, do they realize that God's here right now? Like if you're praying in a Beit Knesset, that means that you believe God is here. Not God is in the Shemaim. He's here right now. If He's not here, why are you praying here then? If you're only on your phone because God's not here, then why are you even praying here? Just go home. Go to wherever He is. But if He's here, how dare you play with the phone in front of Him? This is pure logic, but we don't think about it sometimes. It's just a reminder. So Rabbi Eliezer says that these are very few things and if you do them, you get Olam Abba. Meaning, if you don't do them, you have no Olam Abba. So here we see that it's very easy to get Olam Abba. It's very easy to lose Olam Abba. What is this Olam Abba? Yeah. <clears throat> talked about before. Person that wastes seed without doing tshuva does not have olam haba. 
the reason why is the Or Chaim explained this when it actually was pertaining to Lashon Hara. It says someone, I'm sorry, a someone that embarrasses another person in public. So he says, someone that embarrasses another person in public, David HaMelech taught us, has no Olam But someone that kills another person has Olam How could it be? So Or Chaim HaKadosh explains, someone that embarrasses another person in public, he murdered the other person, meaning that when you embarrass another person, you see their face becomes white and then really red. Which Chazal explained to us that if your cheeks weren't exactly where they are, all the blood from your entire body would spill out of your out of your face. So in essence, like you murder the person in cold blood. But it's still considered like murder. But yet, if one is considered like murder, embarrassing a person is considered like murder, and murder is actual murder, why is the like murder get a worse punishment than the murder itself? Same question you're asking about. Why is the wasting seed worse than murder? So the same answer to both. The person that murdered, actual murdered, because he's still human, because unless he's crazy, if he's crazy, he's patu from all the mitzvot. If he's, you know, if he's, if he's a crazy person, he's patu. But if he's still there, he just, there was a moment of anger, it was out of control, or so on and so forth, naturally, he's going to feel bad moments after he killed the other person. Naturally. He's going to feel bad moments after he killed another person. It could be a minute later, an hour later, a day later, a week later, but eventually he's going to feel bad about it. Sometimes you see people that murder their best friend or murder their wives, or murder their husband, and so on and so forth. Shem Echem, all types of crazy things that are happening in the world, it didn't just start now, it's always been the case. More so now than ever before, but you see that these people, before this murder was committed, they were perfectly normal. You see their pictures online, family, by the barbecue, everybody loves each other, the next day the guy murdered all of them. What happened? Moment of weakness, at the, at, the, at the moment of truth, he failed, he lost it, he killed everyone. Something happened, he got anger, angry, he saw the dog pooped on the lawn, he saw that the, his team lost on, on TV, he saw he lost his job, whatever, the mortgage check bounced, something happened at the moment of truth, he lost it. But as soon as his mind came back, immediately he feels bad, immediately he wants to die from the sorrow that he has for what he just did to people that he loves. Not everybody's a serial killer like the movies. Some people, unfortunately, they kill people that they love, but it's a moment of weakness. We're not justifying what they're doing. In the the Torah, we still give them the death penalty. There's no jail sentence to a murderer. In the Torah, there's no jail sentences. There's death. You kill somebody, you die. So, unfortunately... For him, the moment his mind comes back, he feels horrible. And Torah says that's already a large part of his tshuva. Because he's already suffering in this world. Now in the days of the Torah, that would be a large part of his tshuva, his suffering. The other part of his tshuva would be the death penalty they would give him. Now someone 
that someone that embarrasses another person in public or someone that wastes seed, they don't have this. They don't feel bad about it. And even if they feel bad, it's for such a short moment that it's not real tshuva because they do it again. They don't feel like it's inherently wrong to say something that's embarrassing their friend. They don't think there's something inherently wrong with wasting seed because what they see on TV is people that went to school for a million years, they call themselves doctors or PhDs or scientists of some kind or another, and they're telling you, you should actually waste seed, it's healthy for you. They're telling you to waste seed. They're telling you it's healthy for you. They're stupid, but to the rest of the world, they look smart because they went to school in order to get some certificate on their wall. And they're telling you it's healthy for you to waste seed. So people listen to them like, so if the guy wastes seed, even if he's a religious Jew, he says, yeah, but this doctor so-and-so said it's healthy. So already it makes him feel better about it. The guy that embarrassed another person in public also doesn't think it's such a big deal. Why? He's like, ah, what are you taking things so personal? I'll tell you something that happened recently. I'm in a big Knesset. And uh, for whatever reason or another, it's, you know, some people have a Yetzirah, they like to talk in Beknesset. But not talk like a word here, word there, but they, as soon as prayer is uh, finished, they, it turns into a social club. They talk about this, about, about everything. So anyway, Baruch Hashem, once in a while, there's the Torah too. But the point is, is that finished prayer, I took a little bit longer, and these two guys behind me are talking amongst each other about something, something in the parasha or something that happened or something, something, I don't really, I wasn't like eavesdropping, I don't remember what it was really. But both of them are talking, but it's like, da, 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 da. So one guy says, okay, let's ask Rabbi so-and-so. There's a few people at Tamidei Chachamim in the Beknesset. Let's ask Rabbi so-and-so. And the other guy says, no, 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 let's ask the other rabbi. Now both of them are there. Both of these rabbis are there. It's a, they're talking so loud as if, about these people as if they're not there, not realizing you just embarrassed the guy by saying, no, no, let's talk, let's ask the other rabbi because in essence what you did is you just said, no, no, this other rabbi doesn't know anything. You don't have to say he doesn't know anything. No, 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 let's ask the other rabbi. He's right there. This is lack of etiquette. This is lack of, of any, any etiquette whatsoever. But this is coming from people that are religious. They're in Beknesset. They're religious. Some of them consider themselves Tamini Chamim. But no consideration to the world around them. This is exactly why I tell you guys all the time that if you don't learn Musar, you're no different than a cow. As a matter of fact, the cow is better than you. Because Musar, the cow is not obligated to, do, to learn Musar. People don't understand that without Musar, you cannot do tshuva. You cannot do tshuva. The, the, the uh, Vilna Gaon would say that the midot of a person, that's his, that's his entire being. The only reason he was brought to this world was to fix his midot, to fix his character traits. You cannot fix your character traits without Musar. It's impossible. So, you see many times these people, they embarrass people in public, but there's not an ounce of them that thinks there's anything wrong with it. They don't even realize what they did is murder. That some guy just died. His neshama just died. Literally, you see the guy, he just died. 
and they don't even realize they murdered him. No, no, no. Let's ask the other rabbi. He's right there. He's right there. You just said that he, in essence, in your words, you just said he doesn't know anything. You could have just said, okay, but we could also ask another. Let's ask both of them. Let's ask both of them. This happens every day. So the guy that did that, that's embarrassing people in public, unfortunately, he doesn't know that what he's doing is wrong. This is why neither he nor the guy that's wasting seed has have ulamaba, because they never did tshuva. You understand? They never did tshuva. The guy that murdered, he immediately started his tshuva because he feels bad about what he did. But the guy that's embarrassing people in public in the Biknesset, inside the Biknesset, I'm not talking about embarrassing them in the shuk, in the market. He's embarrassing the rabbi inside the Biknesset. He's embarrassing the guy that sits next to him inside the Biknesset. He's embarrassing his wife right next to her parents, right next to his parents, right next to his kids. People are embarrassing each other like it's a, it's like it's a mitzvah. People love to embarrass each other. It's, it's like, oh, see, I caught him. Caught him doing what? Oh, I caught him. Da, 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 da. He was. Why are you telling the whole world that you caught him doing? Da, 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 da? Why? Why? Why are you murdering him in front of people? Oh, they tell you. Ah, see, I knew something he didn't know. Does, is he okay with you saying that you know more than he does? Don't you? Don't you realize that right now he's like he feels like he's a little smurf? You're telling people you know more than him. You're telling people that you're smarter than him, and he's right next to you. You shouldn't do it behind his back. You're doing it to his face. People have no care in the world about killing each other. No care. They're proud of it. They're proud of it. So that's why a person that doesn't do tshuva has no lamaba. Even more so a person that wastes seed. Because even though naturally a person that wastes seed will feel bad, but it's only for a moment. It's only for a small moment they feel bad. They feel like remains of dog for, for, for a few minutes. But if there's another opportunity and the hormones go crazy, five minutes later they'll do it again. So it's not bad enough to cause tshuva. This is the reason why they lose their olamaba. This is the reason why Avraham Avinu can't look at them. Because they've destroyed themselves. Now, this Olam Abba, this whole conversation we talk about all the time about this Olam Abba. What is helping our chances to get there? What is destroying our chances of getting there? So this Mishnah actually tells us something extraordinary. Now that we know that who is telling this Mishnah, it's Rabbi Yaakov. Rabbi Yaakov is the grandson of Elisha ben Avuya. He is the grandson of Achel. And Rabbi Ephraim says that had Elisha Achel, Elisha ben Avuya, actually listened to his own grandson's Mishnah, he would have never gone off the derech. Meaning this Mishnah, if you actually understand this Mishnah, and you take it and become one with it. We're not talking about just you learn it and you remember it by heart. We're talking about you actually make it like a mantra of yours. You make it something that is like part of your day-to-day life, where you're thinking about it non-stop. Everything you do, you're thinking about it. Everything. You actually understand this Mishnah, your whole life changes. If it doesn't change, you're patul from all the mitzvot because you're crazy. If this Mishnah, if understanding this Mishnah doesn't give you fear of Shamaim, 
you're crazy, so you don't have to do mitzvot anyway. So once you understand this Mishnah, everything changes. Mishnah says here, this world is like a lobby. Before the world to come. Many people invest an enormous amount of their life building an image. They want people to know that they are a certain person. They want people to know that they are have certain things. People want the world to view them as something. The reality is, is that for, for the most part, most people are not what people view them as. They're quite different. But they're different voluntarily. They're different by choice. So for example, in the business world, there's a saying, fake it until you make it. So when you're trying to go up the, 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 the corporate ladder, and you're trying to do business with very wealthy people, or you're trying to do business with big companies, you're trying to do business with somebody that has more than you, you're not going to tell them you're this little homeless guy you just started, you make five bucks an hour. You're not going to tell them that. You're going to tell them, listen, I work for this company, this company makes a zillion dollars, this company's been around since the 1800s. You're going to tell them all the wonderful things about the background that's not really connected to you at all. Even if the company was founded in the 1800s, it's not your company. Even if the product is amazing, it's not your product. Even if the people behind it are geniuses, it's not your intellect. You're just a salesman. And even if you're the CEO of the company, you didn't start it. You could get fired tomorrow if the board doesn't like you. The point is that people represent something that's beyond them. Because they want you to do business. If you came to a guy and you said to him, listen, I want you to invest a million dollars with me. Immediately he's going to ask you, well, who are you? If you tell him, listen, I just started in a business six months ago, he's going to tell you exactly what this uncle of mine told me when I first started in the investment business almost 20 years ago. He's like, call me back when you have a little bit more practice. I was already in the business for a couple of years. Apparently he had a bunch of money. So my dad told me, call this guy. He has money. He just sold some hotel. Why don't you call him? So I called him. And we talked a few times, and he's like, all right, so you have any recommendations of what I should invest in? Do you have any top picks? Do you have any good ideas that I should invest in? So I'm thinking, yeah, okay, so this guy's going to invest with me. So I tell him a few ideas that I have. And the guy's like, all right, let me get back to you. I'll get back to you. And he never gets back to me, and he pretty much disappears. Like the ground swallowed him like Kolach. Disappears off the face of the earth. About two years pass. Both of those investments that I gave him do amazing. Amazing. Like one of them went up like 400%. The other one went up like 60 or 70%. Like really, really amazing results, especially since at the time the market went down. So it really, really did well. So anyway, this chutzpan. So funny that I heard this story on the TV. I still laughing. This guy, this chutzpan contacts me. At this point, already a couple of years passed, I became successful. Not only because these investments worked out, but because, you know, you did well, whatever. Hashem blessed us. We became very successful in a short period of time. Now, at this point, I don't need him as a client. I have a thousand of him. So he calls me. He's like, oh, listen, uh, you know, uh, I heard you're doing well, blah, 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 whatever. Yeah, we're thinking about doing something. Oh, okay, great. I haven't heard from you in a couple of years. Great. 
goes, yeah, listen, do you have any more of those other ideas, those two ideas that you gave me? One of them did really well. I made a lot of money on it. But the other one, I didn't make as much money on it. Meaning, what is he telling me right now? He's telling me that he actually took my ideas, he invested in them, he made a ton of money on them, and I got nothing out of it. And on top of it, he's complaining. On top of it, he's complaining about it. That one of them didn't do as great as the other. This is a chutzpah. So the point I'm trying to say is that why didn't he do business with me? Because when I was first new, no one wants to do business with a new guy. Because you don't have the image yet. Who wants, who is the number one candidate that everyone wants to lend money to? The richest guy. Everyone wants to lend money to, Bill, to, to Warren Buffett. Everyone wants to lend money to Bill Gates. Why? Because they know they're going to pay back. They have a lot of money. No one wants to lend money to the homeless guy. No one wants to lend money to the guy who doesn't have any money. Why? They don't have the image. They don't have a way. They don't, have a, they don't represent themselves a certain way. So the point being is that you have to represent a certain thing. The problem is, the problem is that people start building an image that's really, really far removed from who they really are. And they start faking it a little too much. So I remember there was a, uh, a few people that worked for me, more than a few people. Now, I mean, they see me do business, big business, I'm doing big deals, big contracts, big uh, clients, and so on and so forth. And instead of doing exactly what I did to get there, which is work hard, make phone calls, make, do what you have to do, instead of doing that, they want to do what I'm doing now which is meaning I was doing at the time, which is the after effect. Once you've already gone to success, you only have fewer meetings, but it's big meetings. When you're grinding, when you're trying to build it up, you have a million and a half meetings, hopefully one of them works out. So in the beginning, it's a million and a half meetings, hopefully one works out. After you succeed, it's usually less meetings, but each meeting is significant. So the people that are always looking for a shortcut... They don't want to have a million meetings. They don't want to work really hard. They want just a few meetings. They want every one of them to work out. But now, here's the problem. No one wants to meet with them. So what do they do? They meet with each other. So every time I would see the same group, same handful of guys, they would go, and they'd all, they'd all would go into lunch together, and all get dressed up to work, and all go to lunch together, and they'd toot each other's horn, and talk to each other. Yeah, yeah, we're going to do a deal like this. And they give each other five. Yeah, ha, ha, yeah, we'll give each other five. And they're all like, just like mamas, like faking each other out. Now, not one of them can help the other. They're all, they're all chasing the same dream. But they're faking it to such an extent that they're not, not only not making it, they're faking it to such an extent they fell for the fake. This happens every day. This happens every day in Batiknisit. The business world, of course, you see this every five seconds. And the business world is all fake. It's all fake. It's all an optical illusion. The most successful people in the world as far as money, usually you will see when you see behind the scenes, many times have the most miserable lives on planet Earth. 
Many times you'll see the people that have the zillions of dollars. The guy is driving a Ferrari on Monday, a Lamborghini on Tuesday, a McLaren on Wednesday, uh, this, whatever other brands there are. He's got a house in Bali, a house in Vegas, a house in New York, an apartment. He has everything material you could possibly imagine. But when you go behind the scenes, behind the scenes, behind the illusion, behind the image, you see what he is all about. You see his real life. Son's an alcoholic, daughter's a prostitute, wife is cheating on him, wants to divorce him, he's on his third marriage, the, even the dog doesn't want to listen to him, poops all over the house. The, every single thing in his life is upside down. The only thing that's going good is the image. The image is going good. How do I know this? I saw them my whole life. My whole career, that's the people I dealt with. So part investor, part psychiatrist. Because as an investor, you deal with these people, you start learning about their real life. You start learning about their real life. You see, well, okay, yeah, okay, we're making a million-dollar deal, we're making a five-million-dollar deal, we're making a ten-million-dollar deal. Okay, fi- we finished the deal. Now we have to schmooze. Oh, wow, your son is suing you? Wait, isn't your son, didn't you give your son everything? Did, isn't the hundred-million-dollar business that your son has really your business, but you just signed it off to him? Oh, and he's suing you? Your son is suing you. This is the stories I dealt with every day. But at least they have money. I see people with these problems. God bless money. you. You're missing the point. You come to every lecture, you still haven't learned a thing yet. No, I see also a lot of poor people have the same issues that these people no, have. No, no, no. Different, different world. Different world. Different world. Poor, poor people have different problems. They don't have the same problems. Different problems. The point I'm trying to make here is that people have... The, give the world an optical illusion. The poor person also has an optical illusion. The poor person is, sometimes gives the illusion to the world that he's a victim, that it's not his fault that he's poor. Being poor many times is a choice. It's a choice. It's not, a, it's not necessarily a decree that you must be poor. If you're, unless you're a religious person and you're connected to Hashem, it could very well be something that you do by choice as a good choice because you don't want to enjoy this world. But for the most part, the overwhelming majority of the world are poor by choice. They make really bad choices. They overdrink, they overparty, they overspend, they overextend themselves. They do. They make a lot of really bad choices, or they're just plain and simple lazy. Plain and simple lazy. So being poor is not necessarily something that oh you're a victim. Sometimes people are poor because Hashem doesn't want anything that they have to succeed, but that's not a default. It's not like everyone that's poor is poor because they're miskenim, victims, and the world's just beating them up all the time. Many people that are poor are poor because they made really poor choices, not because no one wants to pay them a salary. So the illusion they give the world is that they're victims. Everyone here, everyone out there, everyone in the world is giving the world some type of illusion, some type of image that they have out there. Now in the secular world, very easy to find. It's, um, it's impossible not to find it if you know what to look for. The surprise to me was seeing it in the religious world. And the reason why is because you see the very same people that sometimes call themselves religious, which is really the people we're targeting to try to help them as much as possible. They're the closest ones to home. Is You see people give the world an illusion like they're really religious. Mitzvot, Shabbat, kosher, tarat mishpacha, all those things they keep, 
It looks great. But then you find out that they're really in business, they're criminals. They cheat the government, they cheat the customers, they're stealing, they're this. It's like an illusion. They just fool people. Or sometimes you see people like, oh yeah, no, I read I read Tanakh every day, I read this, I read this, I read this. Oh, okay, great, Baruch Hashem, that's great. Wow, so are you married? You have kids? Well, no, actually, that's the problem. What do you mean that's the problem? Why, you're not married? Because no, actually, my uh, my girlfriend is not Jewish. Wait, wait, you keep Shabbat, you keep mitzvot, you keep everything, but your girlfriend's not Jewish? How could that be? Or the opposite. So you see that there's an illusion, there's, there's an image, there's something missing here. In New York, I remember one of the most annoying things for me was to search for offices. We had to search for offices. It's very annoying. It's very time-consuming. And the reason why it's time-consuming is because the office space in New York also has a certain illusion. You'll see, for example, down really all over New York, that many places have a beautiful lobby. Beautiful lobby. You go to the lobby, they spent millions on it. Sometimes you have like a waterfall. You have the desk of the people standing by the lobby. It's like just the desk alone is a quarter million dollars. You have these mirrors, these chandeliers. I mean, something amazing. You're like, wow. Bring my customers to a place like this. Bring my clients to a place. Just look at the lobby. They're going to give me a million dollars. Look at the lobby. Two million maybe. But then they take you in this elevator that also has beautiful doors. But sometimes the door closes and you see that the elevator that's on the inside is very different than the door that's on the outside. The door on the outside is model 2020. The elevator inside is from still from the 1300s when they were pulling it with the rope. And you get to the, you get to the fifth floor... And you see the place is broken down and disheveled or ugly or they haven't changed the carpet since the 1200s. Maybe even, I don't know, maybe Muhammad is still there. Who knows? Like, the illusion is the lobby. Beautiful lobby. You go upstairs. What is this? What is this? Would you have a fire here? Why is the, why are the walls black? And this is Constant, constant, constant. Because you're trying to save money, you try to get decent space. The problem is at the end you have to spend a lot of money. Why? Because you have to get someone that matches. You can't have an ugly, uh, uh, a pretty lobby and an ugly office. But it happens very, very often in New York, I remember. I'm sure in other places as well, but in New York being a city that's constantly building. But this is, very, this is no different than our lives. Many times you see people project an image of their marriage. They put their pictures online, the husband is kissing the wife in public. The wife is hugging the husband. The kids look like they just came out of the, you know, they just came out of like some amazing school. They're all happy. They came out of a commercial. They're on a cereal box. But then you see, you get a little closer to this family. The wife hates the husband. The husband doesn't even consider her the wife. The kids are completely delusional. They don't even know why they're even in this house. And it's, it's completely like haywire. The illusion of the perfect marriage is as far removed from them as the picture is from you. But to the world, they're always going to show the pictures of them on vacation. They're always going to show the pictures of the kids graduating school. 
They're always going to show the pictures of something good happening. They're not showing you the fights that happen six and a half days a week. People have this other fake thing that they make it seem like friends. Hey, this is my boy. Yeah, it's my best friend. Every two minutes, this guy is my best friend. This guy's my best friend. This guy's my best friend. One thing I know is that the older you get, the more you realize that best friends don't exist unless it's your spouse. It doesn't exist. You get older, eventually the friends, yeah, they could be good friends. They could be decent friends. They could be nice people. But best friends, it's not in this world. Why? Change. Things change. At the end of the day, everybody wants something for their own interest. Everybody is there to serve their own interest. Your friends based on interest. Today your interests are aligned, therefore your friends. As soon as your interests are not aligned, you're not friends anymore. Usually what happens is money. You put money between good friends, they become enemies. And for women, sometimes you put a man between them. You put a man between two women, they all of a sudden hate each other like they're uh, you know, mortal enemies. Different things, different things that cause people to just lose it. But to the world, they project themselves initially, oh, this is my best friend, yeah, I love her, yeah, I love him, yeah, that's my boy, yeah, that's my man, yeah, yeah, ah, high five, high five, yeah, we're going out, we're going on vacation, we're going this, we're going that. Six months later, they hate each other. You know how many of these friends I had in my life? You know how many of these friends I had in my life? You know, when you have, you have money, you have almost as many friends for each dollar bill you have in the bank. Yeah, it's my best friend. Yeah, I love this guy. You know how many people told me they love me? Right before they stabbed. This is, 12, this is just a reality. It's not about being friendly. It's a reality of life. You ask any old man, any old man, how many friends you have, he'll smile at you. He won't even answer you. He'll just smile at you. It's like, wow, you're so young. You still think there's such a thing as friends. No, but that's my girlfriend from high school. We're still friends 15 years later. Okay, give it another 15 years. Tell me the same thing. It's just, it's just a reality of life. Your interests change. Your life changes. But why am I saying it? Because people spend an enormous amount of energy and time to maintain this illusion, this lobby. So they go to work. And instead of focusing on, if you're already at work, focus on being successful at work. What do they do? They focus on socializing with their friends. They focus on going to lunch together with their friends. They, they focus together to make sure that they and their friends are, are working together on something. The reality is, you're both there because of money. You're not there because of friends. If you're already at work, work. Number one, you're getting paid to work. Which means that if you're not working, you're stealing from the boss. It's actually considered gezel. It's considered stealing. That's number one. Number two, as soon as one of the friends leaves, gets fired, goes to another job, you're never going to talk again. They're never going to call you again. Or maybe for the first week or two weeks. Yeah, but I worked with them for five years together. So what? As soon as he leaves, as soon as she leaves, that's it. Relationship's over. You no longer have the same common interest that kept you friends. This is what I used to tell my employees every day. You guys are wasting your careers being friends. As soon as I fire one of you, you're never going to talk to the guy that left. 
You're never going to be, oh, that's my boy, that's my boy. He's gone. It's like he died. It's a reality. But people invest so much time for their friends. So even at the world that we live in, that people are chasing money, even that they can't do right. Why? Because they want to make friends. The point I'm trying to tell you is that people are worried too much building a lobby, building an image. What I'm trying to tell you and what this Mishnah is trying to tell you is that the lobby is meaningless in the world to come. The image you're trying to portray the world is completely meaningless. What's meaningful? What you end up with. What's the tachlis? What's the bottom line? What do you have to show for it? If you're in a material world, you're already working, you're already doing whatever you got to do, at least be the best at what you do. You work for a bank, be the best banker. You're a secretary, be the best secretary. You're a contractor, be the best contractor. Whatever you're doing, be the best at it. Don't just fill up space. You have some people, they're, they're, they're doing some type of job. All day they're taking selfies and put it on Facebook. How good of an employee are you if all day your boss has to deal with you taking selfies all day? It's the craziest thing in the world. If I saw any employee taking a selfie, I'd fire him just for that. Just for being stupid enough to think that it's a good idea. All day you're taking selfies. Oh, look, this is me at the bank. This is me at the bathroom. This is me eating lunch. Look, I'm eating spaghetti. Like, you have not, you're that boy, you're that mentally empty that you have to take selfies all day? They need attention. It's exact. Why? It's again, goes back to building the lobby, building the image that they have this grand life. But tachles, bottom line, they have nothing. When you ask them, oh, how come you didn't get the promotion? And they tell you, yeah, I think it's because they're racist. I think it's because they're sexist. I think it's because they're prejudiced. I think it's because I'm black. I think it's because I'm green. I think it's because I'm... No, no, it's because you're lazy and you're taking selfies all day. That's why you're not getting the job. You're lazy and you're taking selfies all day. And everyone knows what you ate for lunch for the last 365 days. That's why you didn't get a promotion. You're a loser in your job. In life, maybe something else. But in your job, who would want to hire you? You're taking selfies all day instead of being a contractor, instead of being a lawyer, instead of being a doctor. Like imagine, you have a life-threatening, life-threatening surgery and the doctor takes a selfie next to your heart. Chick, chick, puts it on Facebook. Like imagine this. This is no different. This is no different than the contractor that's on a building taking a selfie of himself. It's no different than some stockbroker taking a selfie of himself in the exchange. This is, what, this is what your job is? If that's what your job is, then no wonder you're not getting a promotion. So if you're already going to do it, do it right. That's one. The spiritual world, on the other hand, if you're already going to live, if you're already going to be alive, you're just going to be alive, you're going to be a, something that moves, and you realize that the creator that created you, you got to start listening to him. The problem is that we're not listening. The problem is that we think it's all a joke. We're very, very light. We're a generation that takes everything lightly. Everything is very light. Everything is like, ah, come on, you're an extremist. Ah, come on, you're too pushy. Ah, come on, you're too much pressure. But if you look at what the Torah says, it's even more pressure. It's even more stringent. It's even more difficult. 
this Mishnah is telling you that this illusion that you're working on, this lobby, this lobby is worthless because if you don't prepare yourself in the lobby, you're never going to get to the hall. You're never going to get to the banquet hall. If you ever go to a guy somebody's house and you see that his dinner table is in the lobby, his bed is in the lobby, his uh, chairs are in the lobby, his food is in the lobby, his fridge is in the lobby, you're going to think, okay, either the guy is crazy or maybe the rest of his house got burned. Why would everything be where the door is? It's supposed to be in a living room, a kitchen, a bedroom. There's other parts. But if you're, all your investment is next to the door, next to the lobby, there's something wrong with, there's something wrong with the rest of it. There's something wrong. Unfortunately, we're spending so much time building this image, we forgot about what actually matters. Many people are so consumed with the exterior, the beard that grows for free, the, the, the keeper that you can buy for $2, or you can get it for free if you just go to any bar mitzvah, the, the suit that costs 100 bucks. We're so consumed with the image of what a Jew is supposed to look like, we forget about the inside. We're so consumed with what the community sees us at, as, we forget at how Hashem's looking at us. And many people forget this because they're so worried about the lobby. Now, the Kadakemach, also it's in Midrash Me'am Loez, says that anyone who doesn't think about death, but death on a regular basis is no different than a cow that eats, drinks, and doesn't know that it's being prepared to go to the butcher. Now if you tell people, do you ever think about death? Hey, hey, relax. Atkan. You're being too uh, morbid. You're being too extreme. Chas shalom. Chas shalom talk about death. Who wants to talk about death? But wait a minute. Who told you you're going to live 120 years? Who gave you an assurance you're going to live a long life? Who gave you an assurance you have tomorrow? Forget long life. Who gave you a guarantee sealed you're going to be here tomorrow? Tomorrow, tachlis, tomorrow. Tomorrow you're not going to meet your maker. Who gave you this guarantee? Who gave you a guarantee you're going to live 120 years? Who gave you a guarantee you're going to be an old man? Who? Who knows for sure tomorrow I'm going to be here? Anyone raise their hand? You don't know. Which means there's a possibility that tomorrow you're going to meet your creator. What are you going to say? At a nice lobby? At nice clothes in the closet? At a big bank account? At a lot of books in the shelf, but I never read them? There was a synagogue in my community I never attended? Or I attended it, but I only talked about other people instead of talking to Hashem? What's, in, what's inside? What's inside? You only decorate the lobby. The lobby, the image looks beautiful. What's inside? If you don't talk about what's, what's going to happen at the end, if you don't talk about death, you don't talk about meeting your maker, Chazal is telling us you're no different than the cow. They feed her to get her fatter. They give her a drink to get her fatter. Why? Because eventually she's going to the slaughterhouse. 
someone that goes into this world and is only worried about the lobby, is only worried about the image of how people view him and how people view her and how people, oh, no, no, yeah, he, he, he's religious. What makes him religious? Well, look, he has a beard. Oh, look, he has a hat. Oh, look, she, she has kisui rosh. Oh, look, she's wearing a long dress. That doesn't make you religious. That makes you modest, good. Religious? Inside. What's coming out of your mouth? Are you talking about baseball, basketball, and the stock market? Or are you talking about Hashem? What are you talking about? What comes out of your mouth? What comes in? In Hashem Yatzah, we thank Hashem for nekavim, nekavim, chalim, chalim, the openings and the closings of our body. The reality of it is, we have to ask ourselves, what are we letting in and what are we letting out of these holes? What words are coming out of your mouth and what noise is coming in? If you're listening to Lashon Ara, you're part of the crime. If you're saying Lashon Ara, you're also the crime. These are the things we have to ask ourselves. Sometimes you see people spend three hours eating. I used to see these same guys that used to go to these lunch breaks that worked for me. They would go to lunch three hours sometimes. Three hour lunch, you see people going to lunch. An hour lunch, an hour and a half lunch. You tell the guy, do we cut the mazon? No, no, come on, I'm in a hurry. You just ate for an hour and a half. An hour and a half you ate. You can't give three minutes to Hashem? You ate for 90 minutes. You can't give three minutes, thank you? No, no, I'm in a hurry. Is there a short version of it? Is there a short version of you eating? Is there a short version of you breathing? Is there a short version of you everything? 90 minutes you ate, you can't say thank you for three? People have kiddush, Shabbat, everything is this. You know, wow, they bring their guests, everything else. Comes Bekat Amazon, all of a sudden everyone's tired. Everyone's tired, this one goes to the couch, the other one's already asleep, this one's like this, this one looks like he's drunk. Bekat Amazon, we need Zimun. I need need people that are awake. You can't count them for Zimun, they're all drunk. There's the Onik Shabbat, there's an alayim, you're stealing from Hashem. Stealing from Hashem on Shulchan Shabbat. Stealing from Hashem on Shulchan Shabbat. You just took all the Onik, you stole it, and it became theft. We ate for two hours, but we can't say thank you for three minutes. You see people opening kosher restaurants. Kosher restaurants, I've always told people, it's a phenomenal idea. Anyone that owns a kosher restaurant should make it a deal. A deal for his customers. Anyone that says Birkat Amazon, I'm giving him a discount off of the food. Whatever it is. If you're selling sandwiches, take off a dollar or two. If you're selling steaks, take off whatever, 10%, whatever it is. Why? Because to have a restaurant full of people making Birkat Amazon, you're bringing the biggest blessing in all of Judaism to your place. Birkat Amazon is more important than Kriyat Shema. It's more important than Shmonaisri. More important than Amidah. Because Amazon, all the blessings, not just money. They said that at least in Williamsburg, when they made the pizza mezonot, they all lost a lot of money. Well, the people that make pizza mezonot are just looking for a shortcut. Because the reality of it is that pizza, it's almost impossible for it to be mezonot if it's sold for anything less than $50 a pie. Because for it to be mezonot, you have to use an extraordinary amount of ingredients that are very, very expensive that no one uses. No, they're saying that it was a mochi... But they changed the ingredients, made it mezonot, and all the people started losing money. What I'm trying to tell you is that 
Anyone that tells you that pizza is mezonot is just lying to you. It's not mezonot, it's motzi. Anyone that's a real tamid chacham, anyone that really has any level of yirat shemaim, even for a tiny little bite of pizza, they do uh, motzi. There's no, there's no such thing as mezonot. So now the question is, the question is this. The question is this. You have people that are decorating their lobby. They're excited by this false sense of self-importance. Everybody feels like they're much more important than what they really are. They believe that their prestige, their money, their house, their cars, their fancy schmancy job, the illusion that they show the world, they believe that that's authentic happiness. They believe that that's authentic success. They believe that that's reality. But here, the Tana Kadosh, Rabbi Yaakov, is telling us all of the stuff that you're spending all of your energy on, all this image that you're trying to protect, you're trying to build, that's just the lobby. That's the part that doesn't actually matter. What really matters is what happens after the lobby. What really matters is if you're going to prepare yourself in this lobby enough that they will let you enter the hall. That's what really matters. The problem is that we're so focused on the image that we forget that the hall even exists. Rabbi Fahim once said in a lecture that most people have taken a mortgage on their house here. Most people have taken a mortgage. They want to buy a house in Israel. Buying a house, unless you're a millionaire, you can't. You have to take a mortgage. In America, it's quite the same, but there's plenty of houses in America that are cheap too. Not in Jewish communities, but in different places. The point is that for the most part, everyone uses mortgage companies, borrows part of the money from a bank. And even people that are vachina don't make much money. They find an etel, a leniency in Al-Achad that allows them to borrow money because borrowing money from another Jew is not allowed because they charge interest, these mortgage companies. But since it's owned by investors and not necessarily by a single Jew, there's a leniency that you're allowed to borrow money to buy a house uh, from an institution. So now, he says, all of you have taken a mortgage on your house here. Has anyone thought about the mortgage for the house in Shemaim? Has anyone thought about the house at all in Shemaim? Forget the mortgage in Shemaim. The house itself. And what you have. The mortgage here for the house here, that's the lobby. That's where you do the work. That's where you're showing the, 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 the image. What about the actual house in Olam Abba? Anybody worry about it at all? And he was talking to Avrechim. He was talking to people that learned Torah all day. So what does it take to have a house there? So you got worlds for one mitzvah you did. So now we have to find out what we have to do. Now we have to find out what we do. So now, Shlomo HaMelech says, it's very simple. Hashem directs you in the way that you want to go. The illusion you give the world will fake them out. What Hashem sees is what really happens. So Shlomo Melech says, Im So in essence, if one is drawn to clowns, he's going to become a clown. 
if if one is drawn to humble people, he's going to inherit humility. And Hashem is going to give the, the inheritance goes to the wise and the fools generate disgrace. This is in Mishle 334. I'm just translating it. The point here is that Shlomo Melech is saying Hashem directs you in the way that you want to go. The illusion you give the world doesn't really matter. What matters is what you actually, what is happening behind the scenes. So sometimes you see an Avrech, he goes to Kolel every day, but all day smoking cigarettes outside. Sometimes you see people going to Beknesset every day, but all they do is talk in Beknesset. Sometimes you see people look religious, but all they do is just talk Lashonara all day. Sometimes you see people do a lot of look a certain way, but what's inside, what's actually happening, is a completely different direction. So rule number one, first thing first, is be who you really are. Be who you really are. You want to be a tzaddik, be a tzaddik. You want to be a rasha, be a rasha. Stop faking it. Stop pretending like you didn't know modesty was the number one rule for men and women. Stop pretending like you didn't know that Shabbat, you're not allowed to drive on Shabbat. Stop pretending to be stupid. Stop playing like a fool. Hashem is not a fool. The chutzpah gets you an additional punishment. So first and foremost, understand it's not a joke. You have to start taking life seriously. Stop taking things so lightly. People take things so lightly today. Oh yeah, what happened? How come you guys got divorced? I know, I got drunk one day. I cheated on her, but I think she took it too... What? Wait, hold on a second. What'd you do? Wait, wait. You cheated on your wife? Yeah, but whatever. You know, I got drunk. So? Why'd you get drunk? Why does you getting drunk mean you have to cheat on your wife? Like, why is that not such a big... Like, people make it seem like cheating is... Ah, so what? You know, it happens. It happens. You know, one thing led to another. It happens. What do you mean it happens? Well, how does it happen? How does it happen? How does this happen? You're taking life too lightly. People so lightly, so lightly, they just, ah, oh, you know, whatever, you know. What happened? How come you're in jail? How come you got arrested? Ah, oh, you know, whatever. I just, uh, I took a few dollars from the company. No big deal. Wait, excuse me? What? Well, you just said something really fast. What'd you say? Whatever, you know, I took a few million dollars from the company. They have billions. What's the big, what do you mean? You stole? Why is that not a big deal? People make the biggest problems and they minimize them like the little miniature smurfs. Like everything is not a big deal. Except if you tell them the truth. If you tell them to keep Shabbat, oh, 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 it's too much. If you tell them to be mad, oh, oh, anything that's true, that's a big deal. But lies, eh, it's not a big deal. So you have to stop taking life so lightly. This light mindedness, this, this, this kaldat, or dat kala, I think it said. It's like light mindedness type of attitude. That's that's mama's poison. It's poison. Second thing is, we learn also in the um, in Avot. We learned this actually. Uh, I guess maybe a month ago or so. Rabbi Levitas of Yavne says, "Meod meod evish falruach." Be exceedingly humble. This is like telling people to split the sea themselves today. Like if you tell people be humble, 
it's almost like you're speaking a different language. Because the very nature, the very nature of society as, at large is to show off. We're more likely, we're more likely to make sins of pride, to make sins that show us that are being egotistical, than making sins of anger. Even though they both, in essence, stem from the same place, we're more likely to show that we're arrogant than any other negative trait. The problem is with arrogance, it's like chametz. Chametz. On Pesach, Chazal tells us, and Torah itself tells us, that anyone that has chametz in his house, it's din karet, death penalty. Death penalty, but the worst kind. It's not like, you know, like, you'll die in 60 years from now. We'll let you live another 60 years. We'll let you live, like, 930 years, like uh, Adam Alishon. Someone you have chametz in his house, he has a little piece of bread. He had a lot of bread. He had a whole factory of bread. But now he only left one piece of bread. One piece of bread. It's karet. It's karet. It's a big deal. So now, having chametz is a big deal. Having gava is also a big deal. Why? It's chametz. It's chametz inside your neshama. So the second thing that we have to understand is that we have to do everything possible to humble ourselves. Tone it down a little bit. You don't have to report to the whole world that you got a brand new car. You don't have to report to the whole world that you got married. You don't have to report to the whole world that you're pregnant. You don't have to report to the whole world anything. Anyone that's reporting anything about their personal life on social media is bringing only problems to their life. In general, anyone that's actually reporting anything about their life to the world in any way, shape, or form is not bringing any good to their life. Like people get pregnant, people get married, and in five seconds, they just pass the test and it shows they're pregnant. Five seconds later, they show the world what the test looks like. Like we've lost all shame whatsoever. We've lost all shame. We've lost all privacy. Everyone needs to know. Everyone needs to know we got married. Look at the ring he got me. Look at the ring and they show the world the ring. Why do you need to tell the world? Humble yourself a little bit. Be private. Be quiet. Don't give the Satan such a big door to ruin it. That's why the Tana says me'od me'od, meaning there's never enough humility. Me'od, me'od. Me'od already means a lot. He says me'od a lot. A lot, a lot. Third, yesterday we learned about Jonah. Jonah made the mistake of trying to get away with it, in essence. Hashem told him to go do something. He told him, go be a leader. Go tell the people of Nineveh that they're sinners, and if they don't do tshuva, I'm going to kill all of them. Jonah didn't want to do it. Now, he didn't want to do it for, for arguably good reason. In essence, he was trying to protect Am Yisrael because Nineveh was all non-Jews. And he knew through his prophecy that even though they were all non-Jews, they were all decent people, that if he told them the truth they would actually all do tshuva. 
Now, why is this bad? In his mind, using his own logic, he says, if the goyim go do tshuva, while the Jews don't do tshuva, that makes Amisa look even worse than what they really are. So at least let's both of us not do tshuva. Why am I going to go help them? Going to help the, the, the you know the others do tshuva? Hashem says this is the wrong attitude. The same thing of rabbis today. It says, hey, listen, why are you helping people convert? Why don't you help Am Yisrael? Why don't you help people do tshuva instead? Why don't you help people learn Torah instead only? Why are you even bother helping non-Jews become Jews? If they want to become Jews, non-Jews, yeah, find somebody else to do it. I said, the problem is there is nobody else. There's very, very few people that are helping people convert. And anyone that's helping people convert, for the most part, it's usually associated with a lot of money, a lot of difficulty, a lot of hardship, and they're making it more and more difficult. Why wouldn't I help them? Even if they're Noahides and they want to remain Noahides, why wouldn't I help them? Makom she'en ish, tishtadel yot ish. In a place that there's no leader, be a leader. Jonah, the prophet, Kodesh Kodeshim, made a mistake for a moment, a moment of weakness that he had, and he said, listen, this doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to me. Hashem says, doesn't make sense that you, that, that doesn't make sense to you. The fact that it doesn't make sense to you, doesn't make sense. Why? You're thinking that just because they're not Jews, I don't like them. That doesn't mean that. I created them. If I didn't like them, I wouldn't create them. So what did Jonah say? He says, Ki ani ki besheli. He says to the Goyim, I know that this is because of me. I know that you're all suffering because of me. Hashem is punishing all of you, in essence. He's shaking the boat. You're almost about to drown because of me. What do we learn from here that we didn't learn yesterday? That Yonah, unlike many of us, took ownership of his sin. Being a leader doesn't just mean a bunch of people follow you. Being a leader means you have to be a leader at home first. You have to be a leader that when you screwed up, admit it. When you made a mistake, admit it. Do tshuva. You yelled at your wife, say I'm sorry. You yelled at your husband, say I'm sorry. Do tshuva. You, you, you messed up in one way or another, do tshuva. That's a leader. Admit that you made a mistake. That's the beginning of humility. Admit you made a mistake. Okay, everybody's, everybody's subject to mistakes. But admit it at least. Don't pretend that you have to hold up this image like these politicians. They murder entire civilizations and think it's, and they blame it on somebody else. Some of them have literally become like serial killers. Every single person they know died. And oh no, we don't know, I never heard, what do you mean you don't ever heard? You have vacation pictures on Facebook with this person, what do you mean you never heard of him? Oh, that guy, yeah, 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 I don't know what happened. What do you mean, he was with you that weekend, that he died, he, that somebody shot him in the face, he was with you. Oh, you mean, like everybody plays stupid all the time, everybody's stupid, nobody knows anything. No one wants to admit guilt. The reality of it is that if we want to prepare our hall, we want to prepare the reality for Shemaim, to start preparing the lobby. The lobby needs to look like the hall. It has to start matching. Enough with this image. If you're going to have an image, it has to match. If it's ugly on the inside, make sure it's ugly on the outside too. If it's pretty on the inside, pretty on the outside also. Stop with the image. 
you made a mistake, you made a mistake. Say, I'm sorry, do tshuva. Let's go, move on. You don't have to become depressed, but come on, do something. I'll give you an example of a famous story of what humility looks like. What people that really understand humility, what people that truly understand the purpose of preparing for the next world. About 200 years ago, there was two major chachamim, two major tzadikim, Rabbi Akiva Igel, Rabbi Akiva Igel, and also Rabbi Yaakov Milisa. So, they both lived in different places, but one time they both got together. And to have two gdolea do come to the same place is a big deal in the Jewish world. It's a very big deal. Anytime you see any two really big rabbis get together, it's a big deal. People take pictures, people see what are they talking about, they try to listen to what they're saying. So usually, for the public, they talk next to everyone for like three, four, five minutes, but then they talk privately next to no one. Not only next to Hashem, for hours. And some of these meetings have been very, very famous meetings where they literally would go in a room for a couple of days without nothing. Talk deep stuff that no one's allowed to know. And they would only tell little tidbits to the public. But anyway, one time, it was a, uh, they were celebrating, this town was celebrating the Rabbi Akiva Igel and Rabbi Yaakov Milisa uh, Lorberman were uh, both in the same town and they gave a lot of honor to the tzaddikim. So they got a caravan with horses. This caravan was extra fancy caravan. It would have two compartments. One compartment they put Rabbi Akiva Eger. One compartment they put Rabbi Yaakov Milisa. Oh, it's like, it was like uh, fancy schmancy, like one of these private jets just 200 years ago. So now the people were so excited about the tzaddikim being in town that they removed the horses and the people of the town started moving the, uh, the, the caravan. They started pulling it and running with it all over town. After a little while, Rabbi Yaakov Milisa says, you know what? We all look here, this whole honor, this whole kavod, it's not for me. It's for the Torah of Rabbi Akiva Igel. He's Tamit Chacham, he's Kodesh Kodeshim. How could I miss out on a mitzvah like this, like giving a Chacham like Rabbi Akiva Igel the honor that he deserves? So he quietly snuck out of the caravan and joined the people, pulling the caravan, pulling, pulling the... Uh, with the people. Moments later, Rabbi Akiva Iger is thinking to himself, this kavod that they're giving, they're not giving it to me. Who am I, Bechlal? They're giving it to Rabbi Yaakov. Rabbi Yaakov's Tamit Chacham. It's Kodesh Kodeshim. You know how many books, how many this, how many that. Shh. Me, who am I, Bechlal? How could I miss out on such a mitzvah of giving honor to a Tamit Chacham? You know, Torah says, Tamit Chacham is like a living Sefer Torah. A living Sefer Torah. He snuck away and he started pulling the caravan with everybody else. When they finally got to the destination, they opened the caravan just to see it empty. Little did everybody know the two chachamim are pulling with them. That's humility. That's humility. Whatever you've achieved inside the hall, that's for Hashem to see. It's not for the world to see. You don't have to make a lobby. 
key is to make sure that we have something. We have something to show for it. Rav Shach, Allah Shalom, had to deal with the anguish of having a daughter die. One of his daughters died. And one time he met with Rav, Chai, uh, Rav Chaim Ozer. And uh, Rav Chaim Ozer asked him, how are you doing? How, how's everything? And he said to him, it's there to the right, first door to the right. He says to him, you know me, I'm dealing with it, I'm okay, I learned Torah all day, Baruch Hashem. so that helps me, helps my neshama deal with this pain of losing a daughter. But the Rabbanit, the Rabbanit's having a tough time, you know, she doesn't learn Torah like me all day, so she doesn't have that same fulfillment. So Abhaim Ozel famously says to him, tell the Rabbanit not to worry. The Tchiyat HaMetim is coming up very soon. She'll see the daughter very soon. The resurrection of the dead is around the corner. The Mashiach is here. He's coming. So Mashiach comes, deals with Gogu Magog. A little while later, resurrection of the dead. So she's going to see your daughter anyway, very soon. You tzadikah your daughter. In the language of the tzadikim, this meant something. So Rav Shach went to the Rabbanit and he told them, you know, Avozer said that Chiyat HaMetim is coming up soon. The resurrection is coming up soon. Because Mashiach is around the corner. And the Rabbanit says, you know, it's the only thing that gave me nachat. It's the only thing that gave me a peace of mind. With all of the difficulty that she was dealing with as far as losing her daughter, knowing that she's going to see her daughter soon, gave her comfort. Why is it different for her than it is for most of us? Because most of us are still stuck building a lobby. Most of us are still stuck building an image, making everyone think that we're tzaddikim, making everyone think that we're rich, making everyone think that we're something that we're really not. While these real tzaddikim, while these people that were glued to Hashem, they cared less about an image. All they cared about was making sure they had the ticket to get to Allah Rabbah. That's all they cared about is getting into Allah Rabbah. Their whole life was full of Mesirut Nefesh. Let me make sure I, I'm allowed to enter. They let me in. It's the only thing they cared about is Olam Abba. This is the main thing that we need to understand. And we'll finalize with this. The Torah says that anyone that learns Torah, the Rambam says, anyone that works, he works, he has a full-time job. So how much Torah does she learn? So in a uh, Talmud Torah, chapter 1, Alakha 12, the Rambam says he should learn nine hours a day. Someone that works full-time job should learn nine hours a day. So how much time does he work? Three hours a day. So what should he do with the rest of the time? In Ilchot Teot, Chapter 4, verse uh, Alakha 4, it says he should sleep 8 hours, which leaves 4 hours. In the 4 hours, he should do other things, miscellaneous things. Eat, drink, pray, so on. But then, if you look at the Ilchot Hamut Torah, chapter 3, Alakha 13, it says, the Rambam says that a Talmit Chacham, someone that's a Talmit Chacham, should never waste a night, a single night, not studying Torah the entire night. 
Wait, but in Luchot Deod, he said sleep eight hours and study nine hours, which is already a lot, which none of us meet the nine hours to begin with. But then in another place, he contradicts himself. He says, Talmit Chacham has to never sleep pretty much. Sleep a few minutes here and there. Never wait till night to sleep. So he's not contradicting himself. What is here? Ilchot Deot. It's for Deot. It's for everyone. Average person. Sleep eight hours, but make sure you study nine hours. You want to be Talmit Chacham? Not much for sleep. Not much sleep. How many of us are even meeting... The worker's definition. Forget about the Talmit Chacham one that doesn't sleep. We're talking about just the worker that's supposed to study nine hours a day. How many of us are actually meeting that description? The Balea Musal used to say, anytime someone sees a gray hair, a white hair on his face, that's an invitation from Shemaim. They're saying, hey, it's time for you to show us what you have in your hall. To show us what you have. You see gray hair? They're inviting you from Shemaim. You see a second gray hair? That's a second invitation. Every time you see a new gray hair, they're calling you from Shemaim. It says, time's coming up. It's supposed to be a reminder. You're coming here soon. Prepare. If you're still worried about the lobby, you're still worried about the image, you're still worried about having money, you're still worried about having a fancy watch and a fancy car and another car and another house and more material and more this and more this and everything just to decorate your lobby, Rabbi Yaakov says you're missing the point. You're missing the point for your entire life. Your entire life, you're missing the whole thing. Why? The whole thing is to prepare for Olam Abba. The whole thing is to prepare for Olam Abba. You're missing it. You're missing the whole thing. You're just, you're just, you're just spending your whole life grinding water, doing nothing. Because that hall, that image, that lobby that you're preparing doesn't count for anything in Shabbat. Juiceless. The billions of dollars that Steve Jobs had when he died, if anything, it hurt him in Shabbat. It didn't help him. When Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and anyone else on the Forbes 500 list die, no one's going to care. They're going to write a few books about them. A few other people are going to you know, make money off of it. But that's it. Nothing happens. Everyone goes back to their business. Everyone goes back to becoming the next Bill Gates, and the next Warren Buffett, and the next zillionaire. Nothing changes in the world. So why spend all of our energy trying to be someone that's not... Anything themselves. Stop decorating the lobby. Let's worry about Olama Ba. Let's worry about the whole. Let's worry about the actual thing that matters, that counts for Olama Ba. Bezat Hashem, this Musar that we learned from Abiy Yaakov and from, obviously from Avraham Avinu, that had it all. That Hashem wrote himself. He had the full blessing from Hashem. He was a billionaire. The only thing he valued was the deal he had with Hashem. You hear it in this week's parasha. You see it in the Mishnah. You see it in the Nevi'im and Yonah. You see it all over the Gemara. I could bring you five hours more of sources. It's not that I am such Talmit Chacham or anything. It's just that it's everywhere. It's the same message everywhere. Enough with the show. Enough with pretending we're religious. Enough with pretending we're the biggest tzaddikim in the world. And start working on becoming a tzaddik. And Bezat Hashem, this helps us 
This helps these neshamot that I specifically talked about in the beginning because the reality of it is that eventually all of us have to pay the bill. All of us have to meet our Creator. If we intermarried, we're going to have to meet our Creator and we're not going to have any arguments. If we're wasting seed, we're going to meet our Creator and we're not going to have any... There's no arguments. There's only din. There's only judgment in Shemaim. There's no excuses. Oh, I didn't know. What do you mean you didn't know? I didn't know I'm not allowed to intermarry. I didn't know I'm not allowed to waste seed. I didn't know I'm not allowed to waste my life. I didn't know. There's no I didn't know. If I want you to not know, then you just be a cow who eats, drinks, and doesn't know it's about to get slaughtered. I gave you a mind. I gave you a brain. You had enough brain to find out how to become a successful businessman. You had enough brain to find out how to convince your wife to marry you. You had enough brain to convince your husband to marry you. You had enough brain to figure out how to survive paying a mortgage. You had enough brain to figure out how to make a shopping cart at Publix or Winn-Dixie or one of these supermarkets. You had enough brain to figure out how to buy an iPhone online. You had enough brain to write an email. You had enough brain to complain about the president. You had enough brain to complain about some dog shelter. You had enough brain to do everything else except find out about me. Except find out about God. I didn't know. I didn't know. You think that's going to hold? Who's going to go in Shemaim and say, oh, I'll fight for them? The guy who didn't know. You have Rabbi Yochanan that fought for Elisha ben Avuya? You have Rabbi Meir? You have Avraham Avinu? What do you have? Papkis. We have nothing. Who's going to fight for us? That's what Amos said. Amos says no one except us. Except us. The only thing that can help us is us. The only thing that can help you get to Olam Abba is you. Not your children, not your parents, not your grandfather, not your grandmother, not your wife, not your husband, not your friend. Nothing. Only one that can help you is you. If we start taking our lives with some serious control and some take it seriously, stop joking around, Bezrat Hashem will succeed. Continue joking around Continue being half asleep. Continue doing half of a mitzvah. Continue looking like half a Jew. A half of this and a half of this. And playing 50-50. You're wasting your life. Bezat Hashem. This wake-up call wakes all of us up. And next week, we'll have some momish to learn. More things to improve on. And already have something to bring to the table to Hashem. And say, you know what Hashem? I'm not perfect. But I did a little bit of remodeling in the last week. Bauch Adonai Leolam, Amen ve Amen.